Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our evening service, Sunday 1st of March 2020. This evening we are joined by Pastor Clifford Morrison, who takes his reading from Psalm 139, and brings us a message entitled, How Great Is Our God, Part 2. Could I invite you to come with me again to the 139th Psalm, Psalm 100. And 39. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me and is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shawl, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book they were written. Every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The word of the Lord. And we thank God for his word. Father, with our Bibles open, we pray for the gracious help of God, the Holy Spirit. We pray that you will enable me to say what you want me to say. That you'll help us to hear what we need to hear. And grant, Lord, that as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the word of the Lord will have an impact on all our lives, not just while we're here, 
but in the days that lie ahead of us in your will. For Jesus' sake. Amen. This is our third visit to this 139th Psalm. And on our last two visits to the Psalm, we have seen David meditating on two glorious biblical truths about God. In verses 1 to 6, we saw that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God never gleans new information. He knows everything about this majestic, intricate universe, and he knows everything about you and me, what we are, what we do, what we think, what we say, and what we need. And his knowledge of us is utterly complete. And David was so overwhelmed by this all-inclusive, comprehensive knowledge that he exclaims in verse 6, Such knowledge, it is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. This awareness of God's knowledge literally blew David's mind. And then in verses 7 through to 12, we saw that God is omnipresent. David imagined if it would be possible to escape God in certain scenarios, the depths of hell, the heights of heaven, east and west, darkness and light. But he concluded that there was no escaping God, which for us is a comfort and a challenge, knowing that God will never forsake his covenant people, but also challenging us to be in a right relationship with God and to pursue the things that are pleasing to God. And tonight we move on and we will see clearly that God is not only omniscient, that God is not only omnipresent, but we will see clearly that God is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful. John Stott writes, God knows everything because he made everything and he is in control of everything. These three attributes of God are all inter. Connected. God's omniscience, which in the previous section has been attributed to his omnipresence, is now attributed to his omnipotence. God can search man out not only because he sees him, but because he made him. God made you and me. And as we read our Bibles and as we meet together to worship God, and as we do life, we need to grasp and maintain this undeniable attribute of God. Because if you and I don't understand that he is all-powerful, then we won't have a right understanding of him. And if he's not all-powerful, then something or someone must be more powerful than him. And if that is the case, then his power can be resisted and thwarted. His sovereignty could be resisted by circumstances, by people, or even by the devil. And so we need to understand that God's power is unrivaled, unparalleled, and unique. David has been considering the omnipresence of God in this huge universe. But then as he contemplates God's power, he realizes that this majestic God made him, made David, made the Psalmist, made him skillfully and tenderly in his mother's womb. Verse 13, look at it again. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. As we have seen, David has been writing this psalm with his heart and his head. 
And as he considers God's power, he isn't thinking in abstract terms. He's thinking about God's power relating to him, relating to David as an individual. This all-powerful God made us. The words of Jeremiah come to mind in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. All of us have an identity. And all of us have a purpose in God's eye. He knitted together all our organs. Our kidneys, liver, heart, lungs, all our vital organs. He even developed our innermost emotions, our moral sensitivities, our unique personalities, all fashioned by God. We're not the result of a cosmic accident. We're not the products of a random evolutionary process. There is a creator behind a creation. There is a designer behind a design. And our God made us, formed us, fashioned us in our mother's womb. Every muscle, every tendon, every bone R-D-N-A. David realizes it's no wonder God knows all about me because he made me. He knew the type of person I would be even while I was growing in my mother's womb. And this truth fills David's heart with praise. Verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God's creative power caused David to be in awe and astonishment toward this great God who had made him so perfectly. You may not appreciate this tonight, but it's a tremendous truth. It's a tremendous fact. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We have been actually made in the image of God. And all of us from conception have intricate dignity, value and worth. Again in verse 15, he reminds us that he is our creator. I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I want you just to hang in with me for a few moments tonight. Try not put the eyelids together just at this particular point of the sermon tonight or the message. I want you to consider the miracle of the human body. Every second, more than a 100,000 chemicals reaction takes place in your brain. It has 10 billion nerve cells to record what you see and hear. That information comes to your brain through the miracle of the eye, which has a 100 million receptor cells, rods and cones in each eye. Your retina also has four other layers of nerve cells. Altogether, the system makes the equivalent of 10 billion calculations a second before an image even gets to the optic nerve. Your tear ducts supply a bacteria-fighting fluid to protect your eyes from infection. The tears that fight irritants differ from the tears of sadness, which contain 24% more proteins. Still with me? That's not to mention the miracle of the ear and how it translates sound waves into meaningful speech and sounds or of touch, taste and smell. One square inch of your skin has about 625 sweat glands. 
19 feet of blood vessels and 19,000 sensory cells. Working in coordination with your brain, it maintains your body at a steady 98.6 degrees under all weather conditions. Your stomach has 35 million glands which secrete the right amount of juices to allow your body to digest food and convert it into stored energy for your muscles. You have more than 200 bones, each shaped for its function, connected intricately to one another through lubricant joints that cannot be perfectly duplicated by modern science. More than 500 muscles connect to these bones. Some obey willful commands, others perform their duty in response to unconscious commands from the brain. They all work together to keep us alive. The heart muscle itself beats over 103,000 times each day, pumping your blood cells a distance of 168 million miles. I want you to remember all that in case I visit you this week and ask you to give me a summary of what I've been saying to you. And I say that tonight for this reason. The evolutionists tell us that all this happened by chance. What does David say? David says, I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. And we cannot read these verses and not think about the debate on the whole matter of abortion. The right to life or the freedom to choose. And that debate revolves around the identity of the child in the womb. Those who argue for abortion contend that it's the woman's body and she can do as she pleases because the fetus isn't a person. It's only part of her body like the gallbladder or appendix and it can be removed. And the language describing the unborn child has changed systematically. In the previous generations, everyone referred to an unborn child as a baby. And women who were pregnant knew they were carrying a child. Hardly anyone can think calmly about murdering a baby, but today the narrative has changed. And the argument has moved on. People talk about the fetus, the embryo, or even mere tissue, and so removing tissue doesn't seem so serious. And so pro-choice advocates argue that life doesn't begin at conception. But the Bible would tell us, and this psalm in particular, that we cannot determine a point before which the developing child is fully human. Right from the very second of conception, right from the moment the two sets of uh, chromosomes combine, once there is fertilization, there is the beginning of human life. And David is telling us that life begins at conception. That we all have a unique individuality from we were conceived. And he would tell us this is how God views an unborn child. We dare not refer to that person as mere tissue. We need to fight to protect the rights and the life of children in the womb. Why do I say that? Listen. Nine million children murdered in the UK since, 900, since the 1967 Abortion Act was passed. 
referred by some as a modern-day genocide. How can God bless a nation that engages in such evil atrocities? God made David. And God knew how many days he would live. Verse 16, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every one of our days are sovereignly ordained by our all-powerful God. And we can add one minute to our life beyond what has been planned by God. Job tells us in Job 14 and verse 5, Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. And David is overwhelmed by the fact that this omnipotent God cared for him. That this omnipotent God loved him. That this omnipotent God thought about him continually. The creator of the universe has him in his heart and in his mind. God is not only omniscient. God is not just omnipresent. God is omnipotent. Note what the psalmist is affirming here. That he has been fearfully and wonderfully made. God created me, says David. Verses 17 and 18, he says, God considered me. How precious are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. You see, as professing believers, we are not creatures of chance. David makes it very clear about that. Nor does David forget this, that we come into this world created by God to enjoy what theologians call common grace. Enjoying the blessings of God and His providence that have affected our pathway. Long before I ever embraced Christ, I could testify of the goodness of God, of the protection of God. I think of incidents in my life where God's providential care and providential hand was upon me. His care was toward me. I was the object of His sovereign care and concern. His thoughts toward me are more than the grains of sand on the world's seashore. How sad that there are many who go through this world without ever realizing that. Blinded by the God of this world, deceived by the devil, the enemy of their souls, and robbed of the tremendous strength and comfort that such knowledge brings. And as a result, God is never acknowledged and appreciated and adored for who He is. What the psalmist affirms, God created me. God considered me. Notice what... The psalmist asks for in verses 19 through to 24, as David contemplates the omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence of God, there are certain things he asks for, that the Lord would save him. The psalmist and the writer of the psalm looks around him and realizes that, that he has many foes, some of them his own countrymen. 
Not everyone applauded his rise from being a shepherd boy on the hillsides of Judea to being a sovereign on the throne. Some of them were lying low, waiting for the appropriate opportunity to join forces against him. And David knew that. He prays that the Lord would save him. Notice his conviction here in verses 19 to 20. If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men, when they speak with evil intent, your adversaries misuse your name. David reminds us that to take God's name in vain is to insult God. And he was talking this morning about nicknames and about names that were attributed to the Lord Jesus, one being the man of sorrows. And if you are a child of God and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, surely it hurts you and it grits your soul to hear the Lord's name being taken in vain. And I'm reminded of Mrs. Higginson. You don't know her. She's in the glory. She lived off the Shanker Road in Caledon Street. I often think about her when I'm marrying young couples at the altar. She had a little plaque on her fireplace. And I can see it yet. A house is made of bricks and stones, but a home is made of love alone. Shopping one morning, in a butcher's shop at the bottom of the Woodville Road. The shop was crowded. They were queued from the counter to the door. Mrs. Higginson was just about to be served when a man came in and saw the queue and took the Lord's name in vain right over the shop. She stepped out of the queue. She said, Sir, you're in a hurry. Come, take my place, and I will go and take your place. But that's my Savior you're talking about. Don't take his name in vain. I tell you, he never forgot that morning going for his weekly meat order. We live in a world where the name of the Lord Jesus is dragged in the gutter. To prevent his name is to prevent his person, and it's a horrible sin. Men who disregard God to such an extent that they take his name in vain need to beware. David wants no part with such people. Notice his confession. Verse 21 and 22, Do I hate those that hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. He was on the Lord's side, and the enemies of Jehovah were his enemies also. Here is a holy hatred, a righteous indignation, an anger that abhors those who continually mount attacks on the Almighty, the Creator, and the Sustainer of the universe. And David did not want to be numbered among such people who were the enemies of his God. The living and true God. And so he prays and he asks the Lord to save them. And then he does something else. He asks that the Lord would search him. He prays that the Lord would save them. And then he prays that the Lord would search him. You see, it's not a light thing to hold sin in the heart where man cannot see, but God sees and knows and condemns. The psalmist is no hypocrite. He knew that there were depths of wickedness lurking in his own heart. He knew all about its secret lusts. Like a wise man faced with the omniscience of God, he did not try to hide his inner thoughts 
and open them up to God's inspection. The Bible tells us, as a man thinks, so he is. And every evil action begins with evil thought. All sin is incubated in the mind, and the sin of evil thoughts will ultimately lead to evil deeds. Jesus taught this. Jesus believed this. He said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. The true, the truth is applicable to a woman. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, purge it, gorge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body and for your whole body to go to hell. And Mark sends out this same message. He records the words of the Lord Jesus. Listen to me, everyone. And understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And he went on in verse 20. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of man's hearts, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these things come from inside and make a man unclean. And let me say this tonight, that every sin that Jesus Christ referred to lies within my heart, and I'm capable, if left to myself, to be guilty of any of these sins. Don't be foolish tonight to quote the idea that says, it could never happen to me. It could never happen in our family. Never allow yourself to be misled in that type of thinking. And so David prays, He prays for a clean heart. He says, point out anything in my heart that offends you. He prays for a submissive life. Lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me along the paths of everlasting life. David realizes it's the right way. And it's the right way because it's God's way. And because it's God's way, It's the only way. You and I are limited in space. But God is omnipresent. You and I are limited in knowledge. But God is omniscient. You and I are aware of our weaknesses. But God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. The word omnipotent comes from the Latin and refers to the fact that God's power is infinite and unlimited. He never has an engine breakdown. He never runs out of fuel. Omnipotence is defined in the biblical word almighty, which occurs 345 times in the Bible. And it's never used of anyone but God because he alone is almighty. Listen to the psalmist again in Psalm 89. He says, O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? 
You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You see, God can do anything that power can do because he has strength to do what he wills. He has all the resources and the ability to work his will in every circumstance in the universe. A.W. Tozer, in one of his most helpful books, says this, God possesses what no other creature can. An incomprehensible plenitude of power. God is able to do anything he needs to do or wants to do. And there are four things as we close tonight that God cannot do. He cannot deny himself. Paul tells Timothy out in 2 Timothy 2 and 13. He writes to Titus in Titus 1 and 2 and he says, God cannot lie. We learn through James that God cannot be tempted to do evil. And in the book of Numbers 23 and 19, we learn that God cannot change his basic nature. And when John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he's given a vision of the greatness and the glory and the grace of God, he responds and he says this in Revelation 19 and 6, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The Lord God, omnipotent, reigns. What a comfort that is tonight. What a a, a consolation that brings to lay your head on the sweetest pillow that you can ever lay your head on. The pillow of God's omnipotence. The pillow of God's sovereignty. To become aware that there's no power or will that will thwart his purpose. There's no power in the world that can stop or impede his plans. There are no natural catastrophes, no plane crashes, no fate, no luck, no chance, nothing. When he starts, he will always finish. He stays until the job is completed. There's never an engine failure. There's never a blackout. There's never a meltdown. This is our God tonight. Is He your God tonight? Have you bowed to His authority? Have you embraced His affection? Have you appropriated His claims on your life tonight? Have you accepted His verdict when He says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that all is all embraced? It includes you and includes me. Have you come to the cross and recognized that in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ can forgiveness and salvation be found? Can you say amen to the affirmation of the apostle in his post-resurrection and Pentecostal message, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is our God. Omniscient. Omnipresent. Omnipotent. Let me give the final word to the prophet Jeremiah. As he writes in Jeremiah 32 and 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power And by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. And if you've never received his son, 
Let me urge you tonight to receive him. And if you have a doubt in your mind as to the possibility of you being able to keep the Christian life, let me tell you this. No one has ever been asked to keep the Christian life by God. For the God who saves is the God who keeps. The God who enables the apostle to say, I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We often sing these words in the company of our children. And it's good to apply them to our hearts and to our lives this evening. My God is so big, so big and so mighty. There's nothing he cannot do. May we be able to say with David tonight, this God is our God, and he will be our guide even unto death. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment of quietness and thoughtfulness as we reflect upon these majestic truths tonight. And let's just allow the greatness of our God to impact our lives. And let's be aware that no matter what the day may bring, our great God is always there. Our Father, we realize at times that these finite minds of ours cannot fully grasp that which is infinite. But we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of your greatness and your glory and your grace. We thank you tonight for your great plan of salvation. for coming to earth in the form of a baby, growing up to live a perfect life, that as a young man offering in Jesus Christ a perfect sacrifice for our sins. We thank you tonight for all that means to us in this life and in the life to come. Lord, we pray that tonight we will not put our heads in the pillow unless we're sure that God is our Father and Jesus Christ our Savior and heaven our eternal home. Bless your word to all our hearts this evening. For Jesus' sake. Amen.